0: this is lee habib and this is our american stories and now it's time for our american dreamers series sponsored by the great folks at the job creators network and they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler, a little more magical. There were more heroes,
1: more things to, to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey
2: Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style.
1: You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of. Uh, You're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant.
2: And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene, the European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Liftschitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the Army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue.
1: In the beginnings when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry. And here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with a bag of ties and I go to the stores around the, around the area. And I uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in.
2: Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers, Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans.
1: I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the you know, so I was inspired by those worlds, you know I was inspired the thought of being a rancher the thought about living in a log cabin that was one of my dreams, but also I had another dream you know in the reality of you know of uh I'd love stone houses, you know, I love Persian rugs i like uh I like elegance, I like them both, and I think I in terms of what I was doing is i wasn't my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now and, and buy it now because it's a hot new look. My jacket was a tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy, you couldn't walk into a store. No stores had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional, in a sense that they had a, they weren't wild, but they they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's. You couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. A hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket. It had a flare on the side vents. So one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed. He goes. He's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes in and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his. Ele- he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place, and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to, and I'm going to wear this, and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself, and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England, and they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hack, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it it didn't exist.
2: And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building to landing a meeting
0: with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe this story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love. And boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. is our american stories and we return to ralph lauren's story we left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in new york city bloomingdale's we bring you back to
2: the late 1960s and a young handsome and confident ralph lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with bloomingdale's eager to strike a deal but not too eager He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president
3: of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed the sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name.
1: It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be.
2: This is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did. Because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub.
3: I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's,
2: Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, womenswear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well. But a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time Magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor.
1: At the same time as I was on the cover of Time Magazine, I knew Time Magazine was coming out, and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time Magazine. And the two... The two distances of life, the fact that that on one here I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time Magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tailor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time Magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and going in my career the heights was so hard to even deal with in a funny way so uh, the brain tumor coming along uh, fortunately it was not it was benign the experience of looking at my wife and my family I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing my daughter and my son we were very little at the time. We were in this big open space. And I said, I can't believe this. I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore.
2: And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life.
1: I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world, trying to be something. I know who I am.
2: And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry. Awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren.
0: There was one of his
4: muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been
2: the Oscar.
1: Remember the princess? I got her. (laughs)
2: Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid.
1: I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy. Um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a, You think of certain... Um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness, I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede oval patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes in a way that um, had, a, had a something to them.
2: Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class. And the gritty, adventurous characters they played in the movies a very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds.
1: If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper, was a very elegant man at the same time he had a ranch where he grew up uh, and you'd see you'd see uh, high noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I love this guy in both roles, you know i he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you don't, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing.
2: Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be.
1: You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, What am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I work with that came at the office said, it was from another company, he said, he said, you know, up till now, I thought I had to change in this world, in this business because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company. I was working with your people and it's so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right hand maybe people aren't all that tough in this business my sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want
0: it to be and great job on that Joey impossible things have happened in my life he never went to fashion school he said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20's he wanted his name on the label crazy right Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is our American stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love telling the stories of how businesses get started and grow. The cosmetic industry in particular is worth $62 billion a year. In the U.S. alone, the woman who started it all became the first female millionaire. Her name is Madam C.J. Walker. A'Lelia Bundles, the author of the book On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, is her great-great-granddaughter. Today, we are going to listen to her tell her great-great-grandmother's story.
5: Madam C.J. Walker, the entrepreneur, philanthropist, and political activist, was born Sarah Breedlove in 1867 in Delta, Louisiana, on the same Mississippi River plantation where her parents had been slaves before the Civil War. She began working in the cotton fields with her parents as a little girl, and by the time she was seven, both of her parents had died her mother died first her father remarried briefly and then he died by the time she was uh, 14 she said i married to get a home of my own to escape my cruel brother-in-law when she was 17 she had her first daughter her only child whose name was lelia and this is the lelia who later became a lelia walker at 20 Sarah Bree Love Mac Williams' husband, Moses, died. We don't really know how he died. You'll sometimes see stories that he was killed in a race riot or that he was lynched. That's not true. There's no documentation to support that. But he died, leaving her a widow at only 20 years old. She knew she wasn't going to move back in with her sister and her brother-in-law. And fortunately for her, she had three brothers. Three of her four brothers were living in St. Louis, just up the Mississippi River. And she moved up there, but they were barbers. And while she had no formal education and no particular skills, her brothers had a little bit more status in the black community in St. Louis. And that was very helpful to her, but she still had to struggle and eke eke out her own way. And the work that she got was as a washerwoman. For the next 18 years, she worked as a washerwoman, sometimes for as little as a cents a day, struggling to take care of her daughter, struggling to educate her daughter. And at sometime during the 1890s, her hair began to fall out. Now, this was very common. We don't think about this now. Many people associate Madam Walker with hair straightening and with the hot comb. Many people think she invented the hot comb, but I have to tell you, she did not invent the hot comb. That was not her main objective. She was worried about going bald. And when we go back a century ago, things were very different. Hygiene was very different. Most people did not have running water in their homes, did not have electricity, did not have central heating. 90% of African-Americans lived in the South, most of them in the rural South, before 1900. So you can imagine, people did not have all of these amenities that we have now. As a result, women only wash their hair once a month. There were old wives tales that said only wash your hair once a month. Some people didn't wash their hair at all during the winter. Now there was some logic to that. People thought they might catch cold, they might get pneumonia. But the result of it was there was horrible rampant scalp disease. And so I just would especially for the young people, to say to you, if you've ever had dandruff, just multiply that about 10,000 times. And then you will have some idea of what this scalp disease was like. It caused people's hair to fall out. The dandruff was so bad, the sores that resulted. And Sarah Breedlove Love McWilliams was one of those women who suffered from what was called tetter and psoriasis. When her hair began to fall out, she was very ashamed. Uh, she thought she looked ugly, and she said, I pray to God to give me a solution, to come up with an idea, something to help me grow my hair. And she said, and then, for three nights in a row, I had a dream. A big African man came to me and told me what to mix up for my hair, what to mix up for my formula. And then my ha- I put it on my hair, my hair began to grow back. Other people asked me, what I was doing, I had no intentions of going into business, but there was so much demand that I began to sell the products door to door. Now that miracle formula was not really a miracle, it was a system of washing her hair more often, of applying an ointment that included sulfur, which was a centuries-old cure for skin disease and scalp disease, so that once the scalp was healthy, the hair could grow back and she would use her pictures before she used her product and after she used her product to convince women what they could do for themselves. Many people believed that she was a millionaire, and she certainly lived like one. Now clearly for someone to have come from the cotton fields of the South, from a slave shack, a sharecropper's shack, to move into a mansion that she had built herself, that had been designed by a black architect, that clearly took a special kind of genius and determination. By 1910, Madame Walker founded her company in 1906, and by 1910 she had built a factory in Indianapolis. That's where she decided to headquarter her company. And as soon as she moved to that city, she would become very aware of The effect that she had, that the money that she made could influence people, could help make change. And so she realized that there was a campaign going on to build a black YMCA in Indianapolis. And she stepped up to the plate and donated $1,000 to the building fund of the black YMCA. That would be like $25,000 today. And she was in newspapers all over the country. The black newspapers put her in the headlines. There were a lot of nationally distributed black newspapers. She probably appeared in the Michigan Chronicle, which was published here in Detroit. But people were amazed because this was the largest gift that a black woman had ever given to the YMCA. And so now she was becoming not only successful in business, but famous. And that gift, when the, when the building finally went up, people celebrated her. Now, she was a woman with a lot of pride, and a woman, humble, but a woman who realized that she was becoming known. And so she was getting a lot of confidence, and that confidence propelled her to attend the 1912 National Negro Business League Conference in Chicago the National Negro Business League was founded by Booker T. Washington, also the founder of Tuskegee Institute. At that time in 1912, he was the most powerful black man in America. Madam Walker did not agree with him on all of his political stances, but she admired him and she respected him and she wanted his recognition and his endorsement. But Booker T. Washington really was not giving Madam Walker much respect in 1912 she had written letters to him asking for his support and he had written very polite but rather dismissive letters back to her she had even visited his campus in tuskegee and persuaded him to let her speak during chapel but still he was keeping her at arm's length and so when she arrived at the conference in chicago in july of 1912 she sent word to him through one of his assistants that she wanted to be included on the program, that she wanted to share her success story, her rags-to-riches story, with the other delegates to the convention. Booker T. Washington apparently ignored her request. And so on the second day of the conference, one of her good friends, George Knox, the very esteemed publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, a nationally distributed black newspaper, and also a friend of Booker T. Washington's, George Knox stood up in the audience and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who contributed $1,000 to the building fund of the Black YMCA. Booker T. Washington, who knew and respected George Knox, ignored his request. And so, on the third and final day of the conference, when Madam Walker realized that she wasn't going to be given the opportunity to speak, she realized She would have to seize the opportunity. And so, as the final banker was making his remarks, Madam C.J. Walker stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium, and said, Surely, you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the washtub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, Booker T. Washington invited her back as a keynote speaker.
0: You're listening to the great, great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Her story continues after these few messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We return to the story of Madam C.J. Walker. We last heard how she started her business and how she earned the respect of people in her business. But now we're about to hear how her continued success and public influence shaped the lives of people around her.
5: Her biggest seller was Madam C.J. Walker's wonderful hair grower. This is the ointment that was made from an ingredient called petrolatum and sulfur. a Little bit like sulfur aid or Bronner Brothers B&B Grow, the kinds of products we still see on the market. She masked the smell of sulfur with a violet perfume, and she also included coconut oil. Madam Walker traveled all over the country training agents. By the time she died in 1919, there were 20,000 Walker agents who either had attended the various schools that she had established throughout the country or who had taken her classes. She traveled from St. Louis to New York to Atlanta to Oakland, anywhere where there might be black women who could benefit from her products. It was very special to complete the Madam Walker course and she awarded diplomas from what she called the Lelia College, the first Lelia College named after her daughter was established in Pittsburgh in 1908. Madam Walker even traveled to the Caribbean. In 1913, she visited Costa Rica, Cuba, Nicaragua, Jamaica, Haiti, and Panama because she knew there were a lot of people in the African diaspora. women who would benefit from the use of her products. She was smart enough to set up a system of beauty culture to organize her agents into clubs around the country. And she said people would often ask her what was the secret to her success? And she said there is no royal flower-strewn path to success. What success I have obtained has been the result of many sleepless nights and much hard work. I got my start by giving myself a start. In 1910, when Madam Walker moved to Indianapolis, she bought this house after being there just for a few months, and it was the fanciest house in the black neighborhood in Indianapolis. Shortly after her move, she built a factory in the back of the house, and there women came to learn the Walker method. They came to be pampered, to get manicures, to get hair treatments, and this was at a time when nobody was telling black women that they were beautiful, and she was saying, you deserve to feel good about yourselves. She surrounded herself with the smartest the best and the brightest she herself of course had very little formal education but she hired a woman named Alice Kelly who had been a school teacher at a private black school to become not only the forelady of her factory to manage other women who were working there but to be her personal private tutor so that she was constantly teaching herself new things. Her secretary, Violet Reynolds, who I grew up down the street from, was one of my neighbors, I often talked to about Madam Walker, and she would tell a story. She said, when Madam, Madam traveled a lot, but whenever she was in the office in Indianapolis and she would come down to read her newspaper, everyone would sit around, the secretaries would sit around, and if they came across a word that she didn't understand or that they didn't understand, they pulled out the dictionary so that she was learning a new word every day. She was learning something new every day. She became a student of history, a student of politics. She wanted to absorb everything possible. And this woman, who had had little formal education, eventually became a person interested in global affairs, interested in the anti-lynching movement, in the politics of her day. When she traveled from town to town, sometimes she would be in the rural south, and they would be going through a town on a train that was too small for the train to even stop. And her secretary told me that she would take stacks of her brochures and throw them out to the people who were waiting along the train line. She was getting that message out. I and mean, then people would write to her, sometimes scrawled in, in paper, in a pencil, on paper bags, ordering her products and sending their 50 cents for her products. Madam Walker's advertisements were all over the country, getting people to buy her products. Eventually, by the time she died, she had 10 products in addition to her Vegetable shampoo and Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower. There was glossine and tether salve and temple salve and then a line of powders and a line of cold creams Madam Walker's success really in part was based on her desire to make life better for her daughter I once asked her secretary violet Reynolds what their relationship was like and she said fire and ice They loved each other dearly and they sometimes fought fiercely but that's like a lot of relationships, isn't it? Very normal relationship. And Madame put, poured her heart and soul into making life good for her daughter. She educated her daughter and she spoiled her a little bit. But A'Lelia was very helpful to her in the early days of the business. And she worked alongside her mother. And it was her idea to move to New York in 1913 and to establish a foothold in Harlem, where the, which was becoming the mecca of African-American political and cultural thought. So A'Lelia made really important contributions to the company, and yes, sometimes they didn't get along with each other, but, but they loved each other, and Madame was sometimes disappointed because A'Lelia didn't live up to her expectations, and A'Lelia was sometimes annoyed because Madame got on her nerves, but, uh, but in the end, um, there was a lot of love between the two women. In 1913, A'Lelia Walker convinced her mother to build a new house and a beauty parlor in Harlem. Harlem was just burgeoning at that point, and just like Detroit was a city where during World War One and during the teens African Americans were moving from the south and populating the city, Harlem was was burgeoning with, with West Indians and southerners who were moving to the city and it, they were riding a wave of African Americans becoming more urbanized and more sophisticated and A'Lelia Walker could see that vision and persuaded her mother that She needed to have a beachhead in Harlem. And they built this beautiful townhouse, double townhouse, on 136th Street in Harlem. It was designed by Vertner Tandy, who was one of the first licensed black architects in New York State. Downstairs was the Walker Parlor, and upstairs on three floors were the living quarters for the Walker women. Every six weeks, they trained another class of 20 women in New York. Madam Walker was very smart about... Organizing the women who she had trained as sales agents. She taught them to become parts of clubs and to organize their financial matters so that in 1916, she got the idea to organize them into clubs around the country and then to have a national convention. In 1917, around the time that Mary Kay was born, Madam Walker was having her first convention of the Walker sales agents. They're meeting here in Philadelphia at a church, and she was giving prizes to women, just as Mary Kay does now, but she was giving prizes in 1917 for the person who had brought in the most new sales agents, for the person who had sold the most products, but also for the person or the club who had contributed the most to charity or who had been involved in civic activity. She said, I want my agents to understand that their first duty is to humanity. And it's very interesting to know that the hairdressers were probably making more money than almost any other black woman who was working. Clearly, people who were sharecroppers or domestics or maids were not making very much money. But school teachers and nurses were not making as much money as Walker agents. So they were powerful forces in their communities. In 1918, Madam Walker moved into her new mansion, Villa Loaro. It, too, just as her house on 136th Street was designed by Vertner Tandy. And this home was in Irvington-on-Hudson, New York, in Westchester County. It was in the richest area of any community in America, not far from the home of John D. Rockefeller and the home of Jay Gould. And Madam Walker clearly turned heads when she began to build her house on this property. First, people thought she was somebody's maid coming to inspect the property. Well, soon they learned that this was Madam C.J. Walker, the businesswoman, the entrepreneur, the philanthropist, the political activist, who was moving among their midst. In um, 1919, early 1919, Madam Walker had begun to experience a lot of problems with high blood pressure. She had not had the best of health for a long time, and her doctors cautioned her and urged her to stay home and not to travel as much, but she was driven. She had such a mission in trying to make the world better for other people, especially for African-American women, promoting economic independence. And in April of 1912, she traveled to St. Louis, where she had begun her business, to introduce five new products. And while there, hoping to go to church on Easter Sunday at her old church, she became very ill. She was taken back to uh, Irvington, New York on a private train car filled with flowers and then taken to her home in Villa, in, at Villa Lawaro in late April. On May 25th, 1919, she slipped into a coma and died. At that point, there were headlines in newspapers all over the country, Madam C.J. Walker Millionaire, stories about all of the people whose lives she had touched, stories that would continue her legacy, so that today I think she still inspires people. Madam Walker was a visionary, an innovative entrepreneur, a precedent-setting philanthropist. She preached economic independence for women before they had the right to vote. I got myself a start by giving myself a start, she often told her audiences. I had to make my own living and my own opportunity, but I made it. That is why I want to say to everyone present, don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourselves.
0: And what a story. You've been listening to A'Lelia Bundles, the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. We love these family stories, by the way. If you have any of yours, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Tell them to us. We'll tell them back to the rest of the country. I got myself a start by giving myself a start. What a line, one we can all use. Many a sleepless night, lots of travel, much risk-taking this woman took. Before Mary Kay, there was Madame C.J. Walker. Her story, her family's story, America's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventures gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By
3: 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established, the population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River, and beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith.
4: He
6: was the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass.
3: Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center.
4: Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush, Uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't
3: have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong-Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799, in south-central New York State to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the west. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of The Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. Here's an astronaut buzz Aldrin, lewis and
1: clark want to see what's on the other side
3: given a mountain we want to climb it we hold those venturers of the past uh, in great admiration then in the spring of 1822 the 23 year old is off on his own to the edge of western civilization in st louis missouri the city is the center of america's fastest growing industry the fur trade here's barton barber author of jedediah smith no ordinary mountain man
6: jedediah's primary reason for going to st louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition a word that he uses often his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. a skillful writer, Smith
3: details his life in his journal.
7: I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth Bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive
3: might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day, an advertisement on page three catches his eye.
7: Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, The subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the river Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley.
8: It was almost as if his life was was lined up for that particular moment, to be able to read that article. Next.
3: Smith gets to William Ashley Name? as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell.
7: Next. What do you do? I'm a trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith.
3: Welcome, Mr. Smith. To the Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, things, men. Let's go! It is from these beaver-trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions as Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume Two. Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earned greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh,
8: There was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people
4: confidence. Uh, trustworthiness and boldness he had read Lewis and Clark's journals Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years and you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance you can get caught up in the in the wonder of, of what's out there and I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust
7: want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land
0: and when we return more on the life of jedediah smith here on our american stories We return to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is Our American Stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him. Confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now, let's pick up where we left off with the 23-year-old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822.
3: The Ashley Henry Expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keelboats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1400 miles, covering some 5 to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Mussel Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses.
4: Oh, Jed, we can't afford to lose any more horses.
3: Because of this, Andrew Henry looked for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Urikkara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd
9: be dangerous traveling all by yourself.
3: Here's historian Mike Moore.
9: To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the west he's mentally and physically tough he's brave he doesn't say i cannot do that he just says let's go
3: they soon reach the uricara indian village near present-day moe bridge south dakota ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 and earned a reputation as an iron willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many
0: other things to trade for.
3: Smith is left in command of the shore party, trade. positioned on the sandbar. Trade. Ashley manages to conclude a deal, trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Arikara deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Arikara plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Arikara warriors and a mere forty Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men
6: The Arikara's unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed
3: sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. As Jed's
4: leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do.
7: But my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing
3: that a few words from me would discourage my men. Altogether, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the word. EricRA evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The battle is one of the deadliest customers. in the history of the western fur trade.
0: Amen. You shall be avenged.
3: Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north of present-day Omaha, Nebraska.
6: Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Uricara.
3: On August 9th, 1823, six weeks after the Uricara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Auricura villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Auricuras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chasteen.
10: They didn't wait
4: on Leavenworth and, and his troops. They came to fight, and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Uricara, and they got right into the thick of the action.
3: Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Uricara are dead, and Sue managed to kill Chief Gray Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Uricara signal they want to parlay. Eurequa subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are
6: outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Eurequas. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power.
3: Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Erikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Erikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Clyman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20-mile-wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. The grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth including man.
8: The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food. It stood up and towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster.
6: Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly. Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets.
10: Get those horses
6: back. Smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front and he
4: runs up into this clearing. And I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. The bear attacks
6: bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws.
4: And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws
6: off, he just rips the scalp.
0: And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at ouramericannetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men, the American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue more of the story of Jedediah Smith... Here on Our American Story... is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Jedediah Smith and we want to find out what happens to him after he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear
6: there lay Jedediah in a bloody heap his men are panic stricken there's no surgeons there they don't know what the heck to do and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face
7: you gonna sit around and watch me bleed to death captain uh, what's best to do Give me a blanket. Somebody get some water.
4: And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me here.
3: Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his
9: journal. Get some water. Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head.
7: Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you got to get it out now.
9: I got no thread. I got some fine sinew. It'll have to do. You're going to have to work on me right here. Ugh. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bare near the crown of his head.
7: You saw it up tight, you sew it up tight, Climan. Yes, oh, I don't need to bleed to death right here.
9: One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over. Laying the parts together as nice as I could I
2: got
3: it Miraculously, the stitching job is successful Although Smith is left with a frightful scar He grows his hair long And styles it with a distinct comb over To hide the vivid red scar Missing eyebrow and displaced ear It becomes his signature look Just 10 days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country, 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts, which sell for $6 a piece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, he organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur tree. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men, having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail through the Mexican province of California. Now, the map behind the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin.
4: Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah
3: Smith. They travel Southwest. And by November, after a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reached Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jed Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a camp on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mountain Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith And the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827. Cheers erupt, and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party
8: for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted unmapped unknown with such ease that he traveled across the
3: landscape after spending a week at the rendezvous 28 year old smith heads for california again this time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian settlement on the Catalorana River in August of 1827. Smith has met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble.
4: His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men and and they respected them. They
8: brought him pumpkins and squash. He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip.
3: Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the Eastern shore while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind.
0: And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. is our American story, and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the West and back. Let's pick up where we last left off.
3: Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on
4: the bank... And all of a sudden, these these eight or 10 guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojave's. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten and spears, knives, tomahawks right before their eyes.
8: They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. Uh, can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time.
7: I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate.
4: They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there.
7: Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus, poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. On one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. All right, my two best shots. I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make
4: As the Mojave's approach Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojave's That was just enough to make the Mojave's think twice about attacking
7: All right, hold your fire We were released from the apprehension of immediate death
3: At nightfall, Smith and the survivors Many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trail blazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on earth, some of them nearly 400 feet high. The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July, 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly, and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good.
7: Great.
3: While his men trade with the Indians, the kilowatt set guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the kilowatt set have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men.
6: It's used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could.
3: Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post, located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington.
8: He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States.
3: Smith remains in the Oregon country, trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar James Hall
6: does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve 1829, and he really pours his heart out and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here and here's a chance for him to to let loose and get personal knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family.
7: In August 1827, Ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, 15 men with me lost their lives by the Oomkwa Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers.
3: During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or eight, thousand. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington. In particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist the U.S. government. Yet, Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830, when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, he is the most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of
8: time. And by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then. And it's pretty, it's no chump change for today.
3: However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the santa fe trail early in 1831 smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from st louis en route to santa fe by late may the caravan has moved into the dreaded cimarron desert for three days the traders push on and no water
7: there's no water here i going to go look for some you guys stay here with the men I'll be back
3: Smith scouts far out of the wagons several miles out he comes upon a waterhole too late he realizes that lying in wait at the waterhole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief they're waiting for buffalo but Smith will do just fine Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains, but they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about, exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, Comanche fire and the musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, but is able to turn his horse about and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanches with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life
0: into history had a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story in the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories.